If you take a tour through world history, one food will keep cropping up. Pasta. Horace wrote about it back in the first century, and there's a rumor that Marco Polo imported it to Italy in the 13th century. 100 years after that, dried pasta took off because it was easy to store on ships. And in the 18th century, you'll find the first written record of pasta with tomato sauce in a 1790 cookbook. As prevalent as pasta is all over the world, its origin story and its path to global domination was paved in Italy. The country spent centuries perfecting pasta shapes, pasta production, and pasta preparation, while also exporting an aspirational idea of Mediterranean life that is still associated with pasta today. These days, Italy is responsible for 30% of the $22 billion global pasta market. But to maintain the popularity of Italian pasta, that might require rethinking some of the fundamentals of one of the world's favorite dishes, the complexity of mass production, the shifting winds of geopolitics, and the threat of climate change all stand to impact how pasta is made and who is making most of the world's supply. This is The Court's Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira Bindrim. Today, pasta how a local dish thrives as a global staple. I'm joined now by Annalisa Morelli, who goes by Nollis in our newsroom. Nollis has covered all kinds of things for courts and politics, healthcare, inequality, but she is also our foremost expert on pasta. Why is that, Nollis? Well, I'm Italian. And uh, by the way, the Marco Polo thing is a lie. Uh. It's not true. It's been debunked. It's a rumor that was started by an American program. I think it was either a TV show or a radio show. And then it kind of went around and then historians had to debunk it. But no, we were making pasta before Marco Polo went to China and came back. Understood. Listener, let's put it on the record. Marco Polo did not (laughs) import pasta to Italy from China. Uh, That's just a rumor. You've heard it from an Italian here yourself. So is it fair to assume that by virtue of being an Italian for your entire life, you have been eating and thinking about pasta maybe more, maybe a little more than the rest of us? Yeah, I think about pasta a lot, like a lot, a lot, even though I actually don't eat as much of it anymore since I've moved to the U.S. But I mean, I still eat a lot of pasta. And yes, it's just part of our upbringing. I ate it four times a week growing up. Yeah, it's what I'm made of. Okay, now that we have established the illegitimacy of the Marco Polo rumor, I want to start by asking about the true history of pasta within Italy. And maybe the best slash most blasphemous first question to ask is, is Italy the birthplace of pasta as we know it today? Yes. So the idea of mixing up wheat, flour and water and making a piece of dough that you can eat, like that's not exclusively Italian. That was not created in Italy. But pasta as we know it now, so the kind of thing that you right now would buy in a box and, you know, boiling hot water. That is an Italian invention. We we did that. And the first place where that emerged was Sicily, you know, in the 1200. And that is the first instance that we know. It's documented by Chronicles of the Era that pasta was made outside the home in workshops and it was sold and traded. So it had become, you know, not just a production that people would make at home for sustainment on their own families, but just a product that you would market. So fresh pasta has been consumed in Italy since the Greek colonies. In the 1200s, dry pasta gets introduced in Sicily, and then manufacturers start making it and trading it. Mm -hmm, Right? mm -hmm. Okay. 
has pasta always been wildly popular in Italy or all over Italy? Or is there some variation or historical shifts there? Homemade pasta was popular in Italy throughout, yes. And it's interesting to see the different variations that were regional. So in the north, because the type of wheat, which is called durum wheat, which you need to make dry pasta and the hard pasta wasn't available. You know, you had different kinds of pasta that was made with eggs, which still exists. Tagliatelle is a progeny of that. And, you know, you'd have field pasta or lasagne in the type that we know now with, with eggs. And a lot of uh, different shapes and different kinds of homemade pasta were popping up uh, around the country. In fact, there were even some sort of laws and regulations that were put up by the Vatican, you know, in Florence, in all sorts of places. But again, the kind of dry pasta that we know now to be the quintessential pasta, like that kind of faded away after this sort of like initial Sicilian success and came back several centuries after uh, to become a marketed product and then eventually give birth to what is now, you know, the mass produced pasta. What is a good way to talk about like the movement of pasta from the south to the north? Essentially, this is what happened. There were areas of the country that had this type of flour, and they realized that you can dry out the pasta so it keeps for a long time. And workshops popped up, particularly in Genoa and in Naples, more in Naples than in Genoa, but but Genoa is important because it was a mercantile area, where they would make a lot of it and they would trade it. And that is the kind of pasta that took hold because that is the type that you can store for a long time, that eventually was produced in mass quantity that progressively with modernization and industrial production was made first in larger workshops and then with big machines. From those two points, which were Naples and Genoa, you could spread around the country as a product, not so much as a tradition itself. Hmm. So what we think of as stereotypical Italian pasta today largely started in the South, migrated within Italy to the North, became more common, and then ultimately was exported outside of Italy. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. And around when did Italy go from pasta as a regional handmade dish to mass production? Well, it didn't go in one jump, but a key moment is the 1600 when workshops popped up in Naples and in Genoa, and they started creating quantities of pasta that could be stored, that could be traded. Genoa was a mercantile area, so like they could sail for a long time. They could be exported very easily. And there's records that uh, Parma, which is in the north of Italy, it's north of Bologna, and it's where uh, today's Barilla is established. The way that they were describing the workshops that they were making the pasta is of the Genoa type of pasta, which was different from what they were making there, which was fresh pasta made out of eggs and, uh, you know, like, tagliatelle or or ravioli or or field pasta anyway. So that was kind of imported as a product from within Italy too. They were copying in a a way of making pasta that was not exactly what they were doing. It was just easier to make and easier to produce in bigger quantities. When do we go to like industrial level, you know, not just a machine, but like the biggest machines (laughs) that are making pasta and now it's spreading all over the world? Uh, there's two moments that are important sort of from a technological point of view. One is there was a moment when they invented artificial drying of pasta. That was 1914. Artificial drying of pasta made it so that you could dry it faster than it used to be. And to this day, it's important to know that high-quality pasta 
takes a long time to dry. It can take up to 40 hours to do so. But since 1914, you can kind of recreate those conditions. And so you can sort of decide how fast or how slowly you can dry your pasta. And then the second thing was a machine that was basically making pasta industrially and was making a ton of it and you do it continuously and create enormous quantities of pasta. And coincidentally, that machine was created in 1933 in Parma, which is where Barilla is. And, you know, like Barilla, the forefather, uh, had a workshop in town and it was inherited by the children and the grandchildren. And then they acquired this invention. And then that really sort of like started creating a large production. And it wasn't really until after World War II that then pasta kind of, you know, the commerce and the international import-export of pasta became uh, so large as it, as we know it now. So it's really a story in terms of modern pasta, um, not a phrase I've said before, but it's really a story of the last hundred years where we went from yeah. machine production, but to mass machine production, to mass exportation. To- yes, and I would say uh, maybe... In terms of the familiarity with, you know, box pasta and all that, even less. So, for instance, my grandma, you know, would tell you that initially they would buy it. It wasn't packaged. Mm -hmm. You know, it would come in like, I imagine, big boxes or like big bags and you buy a bunch of pasta from a larger uh, container. There is something I've always been curious about, and I'm I have to dig into it with you, which is we need to stop and talk about pasta shapes. I just I have questions and I want to know the answers. What is the purpose of the pasta shapes? Why are there different shapes of pasta from an Italian's perspective? So I would divide pasta into four categories. Um, there's long pasta, which can be you know hollow like bucatini or full like spaghetti. There's short pasta. Similarly, you'd have your penne or your fusilli. Uh, then there's pastina, uh, which is a tiny type of pasta that typically we use in broth or, or soups. And then there's everything that's made with eggs. So tagliatelle, lasagne, tortellini, like everything that's made with eggs added to the, to the flour. Different shapes do different things. Long pasta does certain things. It's good for certain sauces. Short pasta is good for different other types of sauces. And and also traditionally, we we have marriages of pasta with specific type of sauces. So you're not going to put, you know, ragu on spaghetti, which is a classic, right, definitely uh, not. classic American Never do that. <laughs> uh, habit. But also, like, there's up to like 350 types of pasta. Like, I don't know 350 types of pasta, but, but I do know that, you know, I'll go home and like, you know, my mom would make tomato sauce that could go with several types of pasta. And she'll ask me, do you want fusilli? Do you want penne? You know, it's part of the fun. Are there any shape controversies in Italy? Penne. There's two schools of thought, uh, except uh, one is wrong. The Great start. Okay. <laughs> the, the, there's two types of penne. One is penne lisce, which is the smoother type, and like the outside is smooth. And then there's penne rigata, the outside is ridged. And there is a very interesting story behind how the ridged one was developed, which is a, a more recent development of the shape of penne, and it's like entirely uh, dependent on the mass production of pasta. So it's not an original type. It doesn't do what people think it does. People think it keeps the sauce better. It doesn't. And it's sort of industrial development that made a lower quality pasta more palatable to the masses. People who will buy penne with ridge on it will not buy 
the smooth type of pasta. During the pandemic, these pictures were all over the internet where like the aisles of pasta would be empty because everybody was going and like buying everything they could at the supermarket except for Penelice, which is the smooth type. Those photos by and large were from the north of the country where rich pasta is more popular. And in the south, I bet you it would have maybe been the opposite. After the break, how pasta went global. One of the things I love about pasta is carbs, of course. But the other thing I like about it is that it's super easy to make. And Mm -hmm. I have to imagine that has something to do with why it became so popular in the rest of the world. Tell me a little bit more about that trajectory. We've talked about how pasta went from being handmade and local and then sort of spread throughout Italy. How do we get from there to pasta being popular everywhere? They actually did some research on this, uh, which I thought fascinating. And they found out that even compared to other types of foods that are equally easy to make and, you know, uh, versatile, pasta had a special appeal because it was associated with an Italian lifestyle. And so it became really popular kind of in the 60s and 70s, like when that was sort of aspirational. You know, so the idea of la dolce vita and like people, you know, living well and having, you know, lavish lunches with pasta and and all that was instrumental in the popularity. So there was an element of like it being aspirational and associated with good living that maybe other types of equally simple food uh, didn't have. Where does the marketing of pasta fit into that? Like you've mentioned Barilla. I also immediately think of Barilla when I think of pasta. Is that brand as synonymous with pasta everywhere in the world as it is in the U.S. and it sounds like also in Italy? Yeah, Barilla is the biggest uh, maker of pasta in the world, and it is associated with the pasta pretty much everywhere. Certainly in Italy, uh, Barilla kind of created an aspirational image of the Italian household for Italians. The ads that Barilla put out, they're really associated pasta with a specific image of like the Italian middle class. In the 80s, we had ads for Barilla that still would bring you to tears because they were these beautiful stories of families that were waiting for a gorgeous little kid could come home from school and the kid rescues a kitten and the pasta's getting ready and it's a little late and then the kid makes it home just in time with the little kitten. Dove c'è Barilla? C'è casa. It's this mythological idea of, you know, living in Italy that doesn't Never really existed. So Barilla sold the sort of image of the middle class Italian lifestyle to Italians and then also ultimately took a version of that and and exported it out and sold Mm -hmm. it to everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. I don't understand that commercial. Why would the kitten, what is the market there that like you could save a kitten in the time it takes to make it? No, it's more like wherever does Barilla, there's a home. And, you know, there were sort of like these vignettes into this idyllic families where everybody is young-ish and everyone is beautiful creating this atmosphere. Another one is like, you know, this family where the dad is going away on a work trip and the little daughter slips a grain of pasta in his pocket. And so when he's away on work, he finds the pasta in a pocket and thinks about the girl, the little girl. It's just sort of like, it's super emotional, but also very Italian, very Italian. And again, like, I, I can't watch it without crying. I'm not alone. Like, if you go on, on YouTube and you read the comment, 50% is people will be like, I'm crying. It's very much what we are or what they made us believe we are. <laughs> I feel that, like... My immediate reaction is like, the house is messy and now there's pasta in your pocket or something. Like, I don't even know that I think my kid put it there. No. I don't think these commercials are for me. 
I don't know. I think they, I mean, they make you just want to be there and be them. You know, you want that happiness. All right. I want to take something that I asked you earlier and and spin it forward, which is we've talked a little bit about why pasta is so popular and why pasta became so popular. It's convenience. It's delicious. All of that stuff. What does the future of pasta hold for us? The biggest is climate change. Dry pasta relies essentially on one type of wheat, durum wheat, which only gets produced in certain parts of the world. Canada is the biggest exporter, actually. Italy doesn't make nearly enough. And that's been for a long time because its production is just so much larger than even what its population needs. So it imports most of it. There's been already a couple of times when climate change-related depletion of production has raised costs and diminished production. It just isn't enough. And that's bound to happen more and more. But going forward, it's very likely that something that we consider a staple in part because it's so cheap to make might become not quite as ubiquitous and quite as cheap as it is now. And I think one version, and I was doing a bit of research in uh, alternative substances to make pasta of, like pulses, uh, you know, there's other types of wheat that have been used and other research. Chickpeas is a big new flour that is used to make pasta. I think there's going to be more of that, more of trying to approximate the taste of something that's not made of wheat to something that is wheat. But I mean, it's not the same. It can be the same. I mean, you won't even eat the wrong penis. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're not going to you know, the, you know, the substitute just... wheat anytime soon. Do you think there's anything less tangible that might unseat pasta? Like in 50 years, 100 years from now, will we be eating it as much? There have been reductions in consumption of pasta, um, you know, overall. And I think some of it is fashion. You know, we've decided carbs are bad, pasta is bad. So some of it is that. So I think, yes, it is possible that we will eat less of it than we do now. Gluten is a big factor, you know, gluten intolerance and allergies have become more, much more popular. So that also kind of depletes the consumption of pasta. So yeah, I mean, I, I can see a future in which we eat less of that. And maybe it's special, like meat, right? I mean, mm-hmm. pasta is far more sustainable to produce than meat, but like, you know, the same way that you'd be like, oh, I'll have very little meat, you know, when it's special, like similar pasta may be the same where you have it on Sunday and you know, where you wait for your little kid to come back from school with a little Lenka. We can't have a kitten here. We can't support this. <laughs> Only with kittens. I have one new kitten every Sunday. <laughs> okay, one more question for you. Because when one interviews an Italian about pasta, I think one has to ask, um, what is the best pasta dish? Oh, man, it's so hard. For me... It's very personal. I think everybody has their own favorite. For me personally, if you have like a good penne with a very, very good tomato sauce. Keep it simple. You know, it's like I'm picturing my grandma making it and she does it. So it's like, you can't beat that. What's the most overrated pasta? In Italy or everywhere? Everywhere. I I guess either. I would be interested in either. I mean, I feel like here people put like, you know, turkey meatball on pasta. Like what even is that? Like that's a meatball made out of turkey. Well, first problem. And then second problem is on top of of pasta, which we don't do poultry sauces on top of pasta because why? So so yeah, so that that, like any, actually, no, the worst, I don't even think it's a meatball. I think the worst is like chicken, what is it, chicken parm, you guys call it? Mm -hmm. Like when there's chicken on top of pasta. Yeah, like spaghetti and then breaded chicken on top. Yeah, no, no, no. All right. Thank you, Nalis. I'm starving now. And this was also a fascinating conversation. Also, you guys use pasta as a side. No, no. (laughs) 
that's our obsession for the week. This episode was produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake, and our executive producer is Alex Osala. The theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sukira. Special thanks to Annalisa Morelli in New York. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Just check if they're Penne Liche or Penne Regate people first. Then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. Mm-hmm.